We are in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I know Genesis chapters 1 and 2 took some time to get through, but we are establishing foundations. And we're going through Genesis 1 through 11, and we should be done just about the time for Christ's return. (laughs) Whenever that is. But I just want you to understand that uh, Genesis 1 through 2 was just so jam-packed with things and you're going to see as we go through the series and foundations how, how pertinent this is to where we're at right now and the human condition that we see all around us. And really, we struggle with, actually. The big question for Genesis chapter 3 is, how did we get from a pristine beauty and idyllic setting seen in Genesis 1 and 2 With the existence of the first couple, Adam and Eve, and the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delights, to what we experience life to be presently, what happened? A life that's filled with disorder, disunity, conflict, and chaos, pain, suffering, death, that that leads us to sing songs like we just sang. Because we call out, because we're suffering whether it be because of our own poor decisions and desire to rebel against God, the God that we love and wander from Him, or whether it's things that are coming upon us from outside because of the things that are happening in this world. Was there really a world that was like the one that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2? Or is it just some kind of a story with spiritual lessons that we're to learn from it It's difficult to believe that everything is so different from what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. And then compare it with the reality of our present existence. It's hard. Well, over the past few weeks, I've shown the Bible's declaration that God created mankind as the pinnacle of his creative work. It was the man and the woman that God created in his image, and only the man and the woman that God created in his image. And I explained how being in the image of God means that mankind, humanity, is supposed to glorify God by reflecting his image in and through our lives. Maybe that's why we read in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't do a very good job of that. In fact, it's impossible. Humanity has been made the regents over God's creation. He never rescinded that. We are still considered regents over the earth. And I explained how this affects the true identity of mankind. And and also, we saw some of the abnormalities of the present day and self-proclaimed identities that are contrary to the identity that God established in Genesis 1 and 2. How do we get from the pristine beauty and idyllic setting Seen in Genesis 1 and 2. We're about to launch on the adventure that answers that question. John MacArthur in his excellent book on Genesis, The Battle for the Beginning, says this about the fall. Genesis 3 is one of the most vitally important chapters in all the Bible. It is the foundation of everything that comes after it. Without it, little else in Scripture or in life would make sense. Genesis 3 explains the condition of the universe and the state of humanity. It explains why the world has so many problems. It explains the human dilemma or the human condition. It explains why we need a Savior. And it explains what God is doing in history. I would say a hearty amen to that. It's very, very true. In fact, Genesis 1 through 11 really lays the foundation for the rest of Scripture. Everything we need to know is in Genesis 1 through 11. And it points us to a Savior. So in Genesis 3, this is what's coming. In Genesis 3, we're going to see the deception of Satan. We're going to cover that today. And then we're going to talk about the first sin committed by Adam and Eve, the effects of that sin on them, and then on the rest of humanity, And then Genesis 3 explains God's judgment on sin as well as his magnificent mercy. All this is going to be contained within chapter 3 as we study about the fall of mankind into sin. Of course, that's going to take a little while to get through. 
but I am determined to keep with the narrative and not, not go off into so many different branches. We had to do that uh, in Genesis 1 and 2 because there was so much foundation I needed to lay to get us on track for where we're heading now. But what happened? Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pray. Father, as we consider just the first five verses of this chapter and the implications that they have on our human condition, the way things really are all around us and within us, it's staggering to know that sin can bring all this about. But it is true. We pray that you'd open this up to our hearts, that our hearts would be receptive to the truth of your word, and that it would change us, that it would deepen our fear of sin, that it would make us cling to you more tightly, that it would make us pray more fervently to be protected, from temptation, Lord. Lead us not into temptation. Oh God, we put such a a low view on sin. Help us to understand how corrupting it truly is. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to cover two areas basically today. The serpent and his identity is the first section. It's in your bulletin. And then we'll go into the seduction the seduction of that serpent. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. First we want to talk about his identity. Who is this serpent? And even though we can identify the tempter in the garden as Lucifer, Satan, the devil, as we compare scripture with scripture, there's more to it than that. We need to understand what each of those titles means as it pertained to Eve facing that serpent in the garden. And then, by extension, in the second portion, there'll be a personal application to what we face day in and day out as we face temptation. Spurgeon provides us with a good reminder regarding the serpent. He says this, In all probability, that reptile called the serpent was a nobler creature before the fall than after the fall. The words of our text, so far as they're literally concerning the serpent, threaten that there's going to be a change that would be wrought in him. It has been a sort of speculative opinion that that creature that appeared to Eve was either having wings or somehow able to move without creeping upon the earth as it now has been confined to. So Spurgeon takes the effect of the fall on the serpent and goes backwards and says he had to be something quite different from what he was after that pronouncement of judgment upon him. Now, there are a number of places in the Bible that instruct us as to the identity of the serpent. We compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture actually interprets itself quite, quite easily and quite profoundly. The New Testament book of Revelation identifies the serpent as Satan, the fallen archangel, who rebelled against God in Revelation 12.9, we read, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He is thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Well, I could preach for a month of Sundays right there. There's so much in there, but... Just take it at its general statement here that it's identifying the serpent of old with Satan and the devil. 
And then in, in 20, Revelation 20, verse 2, it says, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, there's that phrase again, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now we've gone all the way from the first book, chapter 3 in Genesis, all the way to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, where this devil, this serpent, is described to us. And there are just a couple of things that we learn from these New Testament texts. Number one, the serpent of old is identified as the devil and Satan. Okay, now I don't know what form it took. I don't know if it was a, a serpent, uh, a snake. Um, it, it says a serpent, but I don't know what form it was. We're not really told. Well, we do know that it was condemned to crawl on its belly and eat dust for all the days of its life. But the serpent of old is identified in the New Testament as the devil and Satan. Secondly, the reference of old takes us all the way back to Genesis 3. I mean, that's the intention of that verse. It says the serpent of old. What's it referring to? Well, the serpent in the garden. And then thirdly, his work is described as a deceiver. He is a deceiver. The English Standard Version and the American Standard Version translate this verse by giving Satan a proper name. He is referred to in those translations, as the deceiver. It's a proper name. It's his very nature to deceive. Now, the word deceive means to lead into error, to seduce, to lead astray, to mislead. To deceive means to cause, to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. To deceive implies the intrusion of a false idea, a belief that causes ignorance and bewilderment or helplessness. To deceive means to mislead the mind, leading it astray from that which is straight. Cause to err from the truth. Cause to believe what is false. The cause to disbelieve what is true. And we see that in this text of Scripture that I read to you. Eve knows what is true. God has told her what is true. And the devil comes in and begins to deceive her. The clearest New Testament description of this deceiver and his behavior is in John 8, 44. Again, Scripture translating Scripture, interpreting Scripture. He, that deceiver, the devil, Satan, that old serpent, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The very name Satan means opposer. He is an opposer. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of God's people and all that is right and true. He originally held a lofty position as God's anointed cherub. Anointed cherub, and if you've been with us for any length of time, you've heard me describe cherubs not as those cute little things on Valentine's Day with an arrow. They're, they're massive, strong, mighty, angelic beings, and they were given the job of guarding God and his holiness. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 18. I'll read this to you. To remind you, as I mentioned um, before when I was teaching, that whenever we think of the devil, we think of Lucifer, the devil, the opposer, whatever, we want to get a bead on him, there's two chapters, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Just like when we want to understand what love is, we turn to 1 Corinthians 13. When we want to understand what faith is, we turn to Hebrews 11, okay? These things need to be in our minds because we need to be biblically driven people. We can't just work off of our feelings, our emotions, what we feel. We need to work off the truth of God's word. Beginning in verse 11 of Ezekiel 28. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take, a, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord. Now this is a lamentation against the king of Tyre. But we will see as we read through it that it's, it's not an earthly king that's being addressed here or described. 
You had the seal of perfection. What king on earth has a seal of perfection? Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now this kind of gets us to where we need to be. You were in Eden, the garden of, of God. And every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers or protects. And I placed you there. There you have the sovereignty of God over this angelic being that he created. I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire, and you were blameless in your ways. He is created blameless in his ways. From the day you were created until, you can circle that in your Bible, until unrighteousness was found in you. Unrighteousness was found in this anointed cherub. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Now turn over to Isaiah 14, and we'll see a further description of this serpent of old. Again, in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. In some translations, star of the morning is uh, translated Lucifer. You've been cut down to the earth, and you have weakened the nation. So we see that he was in heaven, and then he's cast down to the earth. But you said in your heart, and this is what that old serpent said in his heart, at this time, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That would be about above all the angelic host. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. <laughs> that did not happen Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the grave, to the land of the dead, to the recesses of the pit. Now, two scriptures, those two scriptures describing the same malevolent person, Satan, the opposer of God, and everything to do with God. He opposes everything. But note this from these passages. Satan wanted to be the possessor of the heavens and the earth, but having failed in heaven, he was cast down to the earth. And he now exercises his energy and power to consolidate his hold on the earth, and he does it through attacking God's regents on the earth. Adam and Eve were his target. God made them the regents of the earth, those who would oversee the earth and take care of of the earth, and Satan says, uh-uh, I will not have it. In addition to having characteristic of being an opposer, Satan is called a tempter, because he lures through seduction and lies. His ambition was, and continues to be, to ensnare people by taking them captive, captive to do his will, just as he did with the angels that followed him and were cast out of heaven with him to the earth in their rebellion against God. Now the phrases serpent of old and, and from the beginning mentioned in the above text is a direct reference to our text in Genesis chapter 3. So we're identifying the serpent, who he is. He's, he's the devil, he's Satan. A serpent is more crafty, which means shrewd, he's subtle, he's sly. Never forget translating this, this into the Taliabo language. Our translator said, oh, you mean like so-and-so. And we went, oh, my Lord, who is this? Because, <laughs> you know, when you're translating, you can't just, you're, you're, you're looking for that word subtle. 
you know. And so the translator, my, my colleague Daryl, was explaining what it's like. He's really sly. He's really tricky. He, he, you know, he deceives and all this stuff. And he says, oh, you mean like, you know, Namu. And Daryl came over and he says, do you know a Namu? <laughs> wow. So there's two examples of just how shifty the serpent is, and we see it right in this, this verse, verse 1. First, the serpent, in his conversation with the woman, uses Elohim. Look at, look at Genesis 3.1. It's very interesting. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. That's, that's Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has Elohim said, you shall not eat God. There is no Yahweh there. The usual term in Genesis 2 and 3 is Yahweh Elohim. The first usage of God's personal name, Yahweh, is seen in beginning in 2.4, and it's used no less than 11 times, all showing his interaction with Adam and Eve. It's more his personal name when God uh, was revealing himself to him. He said, who should I say is sending me? Remember when he was talking to the angel and he said, I am that I am. He said, I am Elohim. I am Yahweh. Yahweh is used to reflect God's personal relationship with his creation man. But Satan's use of Elohim in his first words to the woman show an immediate in intimation of his distance from God. He, he knows him as the Almighty, the Great One, Elohim. He doesn't know him as a personal God, as a covenant God, as one in relationship with him. The implication is the serpent does not enjoy that special intimacy with God that the man and woman did. Secondly, from the very beginning of the conversation with the woman, he casts doubt on the truthfulness of God's word. Indeed, has God said. He misrepresents God's command to Adam and Eve. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden, emphasizing the negative. When God had actually said, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Generous. Emphasizing the positive. The serpent's crafty. He's subtle. He's shrewd. And he presents God as an ogre. This may be the very first time. You've heard me talk from this pulpit about how many of us have a, 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 a wrong view of God as an ogre just waiting to, to punish us. He's, like a, he's got his stick over us and just waiting for us to get out of line so he can, bam, smash us. That's not the God of the Bible. That's a God that the devil has skewed your mind to think of him differently. He is a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a kind God. Yes, he's holy. And he must judge sin. But he makes a way out of that judgment as well. Hmm. But Satan brings his thought into her mind. He just wants to withhold good from you. And that's sadly the way some people view God, even believers. He wants to withhold good from us. And you try to make him happy. Beloved, you can't make him any more happier than Jesus did when he died on the cross. And you need to stand in that. That is your foundation. God sees you through Christ. You're not going to please him any more than your Savior could please him. From the beginning, Satan tried to undermine God's people by undermining God's word. Now, listen to this. He can undermine just as effectively by getting us to neglect God's word as he can by getting us to doubt it. The further away from the word of God we are, the more prone we are to use our own reasoning and our own thinking. Romans 12 tells us that we need to allow the word of God to transform our minds by the renewing of our minds. That comes from the word of God. We got the wrong scripts going on in our mind. And we live out those scripts, and they're contrary to God's word. But if you're reading God's word more and more and more and more, your scripts begin to get corrected. The Holy Spirit edits those scripts. Sometimes he has to just rip them up and throw them out, like that one that God's an ogre. Okay? 
So be in the word. Don't doubt it. Neither neglect it. Now, I want to talk about the seduction. This is the second part, verses 2 to 5. But let me just say the entire first point describes the serpent and his identity, and it shows us deception from without. The serpent was not inside Eve. He was outside tempting her. And so we could say that this is the devil's deception. Now we're going to go into Eve's self-deception. This first verse here showed us that the devil is bringing a temptation from without, but then Eve takes it and internalizes it and begins to process it. And so it becomes her temptation from within her own self. And the temptation came through conversation and reasoning, but subtle ships away from the truth and to a lie. Let's look at verse 2 through 5. The woman said to the serpent from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, she doesn't even name it. <laughs> there were two trees in the middle of the garden. Which one is she talking about? From the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, if the serpent twisted God's word, causing doubt in Eve's mind, then it's also important to note that he initially bypassed Adam and went directly to Eve. Eve was created to be the man's helper. And as such, she was created to live within the sphere of his loving protection and under his leadership. But here we see Eve, independent of Adam, answering the serpent's question. And Eve's answer to the question added to God's word. Actually, she already had fallen to the serpent's seduction because her addition to God's prohibition emphasized the negative, just like the serpent had done. She said, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. God did not say that. In this way, she makes God seem to be overly restrictive when his original pronouncement was generous, magnanimous. From any tree in the garden, you may freely eat, he said. Just one you shouldn't eat from. And yet she limits it, doesn't she? Abundant and generous, God availed all the trees yielding fruit to the couple except for one tree. And Eve switched it around made it seem that God was overly restrictive by adding, you shall not eat from it or touch it. She was already being led away, led astray in her thinking. And Satan builds upon this initial attack on God's integrity here. Seeing the woman's freedom to misrepresent God's word, the serpent goes further and directly contradicts God's word. First, he's subtle, crafty, sneaky, comes in and just kind of, intimates some things about God. And then he sees the woman is already in the process of being corrupted, and he just comes out and bam, just completely contradicts what God said. He said, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And the serpent said, you surely will not die. You know, today there is no God there is no afterlife. You've got to grab all the gusto you can get. When you die, you're just going to go into the ground like the animals. There's no hell. That's just some old wives' tale that our ancestors used to talk about to keep us in line. There's no hell. There are no consequences. Consequences might be personal because you made a bad decision, but there's really no consequences. You do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. Be your most authentic self. Whatever that is. There are no defined genders. You can choose what gender you are or no gender at all. Or maybe go between them. True or false. There are no, you fill in the blank. Our world is filled with this stuff everywhere. The opposer goes deeper now and entices the woman. In the end, the serpent levels his charge against God to the woman. It says, God knows, he knows, that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. 
Don't forget what that leading angel, that, that anointed cherub said in his rebellion against God when he repeated, I will, and ended it by saying, I will make myself God, basically. I'll make myself like the Most High. Now here in the Garden of Eden, he brings this temptation before the woman to rebel against the clear command of God and become like God. Three things that snared this woman. Number one, she saw the tree was good for food. She looked at it. She saw that the tree was good for food. Verse six, she saw it was a delight to the eyes. Secondly, and thirdly, she saw it was desirable to make her wise. Wow. Eve's temptation came from without, but she processed it within. Eve considered that the fruit was useful because it was attractive and it would make her wise. And the woman became deceived then and she ate. Now, according to John 2.16, all temptation comes through three portals or three gateways, if you will. John 2.16, 1 John 2.16 says this, for all that is in the world, that's a pretty strong statement, everything that's in the world, okay, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's not from the Father, but is from the world. So you got the lust of the flesh, and for Eve, she considered it good for food. She looked at it, and looked, it looked good for food. The lust of the eyes. For Eve, it was the delight to her eyes. It was eye candy. It was nice. And the boastful pride of life, she thought it would be great. It would make her wise. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Wow. James gives us a greater depth as he instructs us that God does not tempt anyone. In the verses right before it, he says, don't think God's tempting you. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. But sin, coming from the three mentioned gateways, goes through a very identifiable process. And we see it in James. Each one is tempted when he is carried away, enticed of his own lust. And then, when that takes place, it's like sin has been conceived, and it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is given birth to, when it's accomplished, when it's all done, it brings about death. This is serious stuff, people. Let's break that down just a little bit. Each one is tempted. Every human being, each one of us, right? There are no exceptions, and the temptation is seen as being an ongoing possibility because that very verb of being tempted, each one is tempted, is in the present tense, and that means a state of continual, repeated, and ongoing situation. It's a tense of the verb. It's not just a one-time thing. So what is the source of that temptation? says, well, when we're carried away or we're enticed. Both terms are of the same process. They're just identifying different elements of it. Carried away and enticed. Carried away was used to describe how bait was laid out for an animal to be caught and lured so intense, the lure was so intense as to literally drag out the beast from its protected covering of brush or a cave. It's a hunting term. Okay, that's to get carried away by something that's alluring. The second term was used of a fisherman's bait, used to lure the fish away from the rest of the fish and onto the hook. You guys that fish, you know that. Ladies that fish, you understand that. The important thing is to remember that when considering both of the terms, they have a common idea, and that is allurement. Something is alluring them away from a safe spot. And it makes the prey focus only on the attractiveness of the bait. <laughs> this is really important in areas of temptation. For us, 
and it should have been for Eve as well. When we're tempted to evil, we reason within ourselves only about the advantages of going forward. We see only the supposed enjoyment of the desired object that is luring us away, and none of the ruin of sin once committed. Randy Elkhorn, who has written some pretty good stuff on heaven and different things, he and a number of pastors got together and they said, we want to make a pact with one another uh, that we will not use pornography and we will not commit adultery for our wives. And they made lists of the consequences of them doing those things. And then they held each other accountable to that. See, they did just the opposite of what temptation does, which is lures us into thinking all the profits, the benefits, it'll feel so good. I deserve happiness, whatever else excuse you want to use, self-deception. And they went right against that and they said, these are the consequences of that sin that would be brought about in our lives if we followed through and sinned like that. It says, by his own lust, here's the real culprit, here's the real source of temptation, it's our own lust. We can't say it was a temptation sent from God. James frankly just states it in the verses before, God does not tempt to sin. We can't blame someone else because James says it's our own lust, not somebody else's. And it comes deep from within us and latches on. It's an allurement. Now, what is the lust that is our own? The word simply refers to some deep, strong desire of longing of any kind, not just negative or evil. It's a context that brings out the meaning. And there is a part within each of us, listen to me, even as the redeemed, the sin that remains within us, that's the lust it's talking about. Some call it unredeemed flesh. Others say it's a sin nature or the enemy within. But whatever name we give it, it exists within us, even as redeemed people. And there's one passage in Romans 7, 18 through 25, that addresses this. You can read that at a later time. I'll just pull out verse 21. Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Evil is present in me. The one who wishes to do good. <laughs> I know none of you can relate to that. And although believers have been gloriously saved, it's true, and we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Peter teaches us that. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Paul teaches us that. Nevertheless, there is still a principle of sin, of remaining sin in this mortal body. And that principle of sin, it actually longs for, lusts for, illicit things. Things that are not allowed, according to the truth of God's word. And this is what made Paul cry out in, in, in that same chapter, in verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? The flesh. When will I be rid of this? It's not the body that's evil, it's what dwells within the body, that remaining sin. That's why we look forward to glorified bodies, when we will be delivered once and from all from the very presence of sin. Justification means we have been delivered from the punishment of our sin through Jesus Christ. Sanctification means that we can say no to sin, and so the power of sin has been broken, but we will yet experience deliverance from the very presence of sin when we're glorified. These mortal bodies need to be changed. That's why even in the rapture, when, as we're going up, our bodies are going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. Why? Because mortality cannot take on immortality. We can't go to heaven in these bodies. It's not possible. Jesus Christ, in his human body, his body needed to be glorified, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father in his glorified body. Not that he had sin in it, but it's a, a picture of what's going to happen with us. Now here's the steps of temptation according to James 1.15. Then when lust has conceived, that, that sin within us has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, having been fully formed, it brings forth death. Then... 
Right from the very beginning of verse 15, we see that there is a process here. And the word then points to a sequence of events. First this, then that, then this, then that. When lust is conceived. You see, the temptation itself is not sin. That's important to understand. And and to help you to understand this, I think a quote by Martin Luther will help. He said about this, quote, you cannot prevent the birds from flying in the air over your head. Are, Are we okay with that? I mean, we can't stop the birds from flying over our head in the air. But you can certainly prevent them from building a nest in your hair. That's sin. That's when sin is conceived. Okay? A lot of lust out there floating around. Okay? You men, she walks past. You look, and then you turn your eyes away. That's not letting the nest get built. Okay? On the internet, that's not letting the nest get built. Scrub it. Get rid of it. Tell somebody about it. Ladies, you see that home that you covet. And then you look at your home and you go, oh my gosh, put it down. (laughs) It's a temptation, right? Don't let it build its nest. How would it build its nest? Honey, we got to get out of this place. Babe, I only make so much money. Honey, I just can't stand it. You know what I'm talking about. It becomes sin. That lust that wells up, okay? So in the initial sense, even the initial sense of being drawn toward the desired object The thought, action, it's not sin if you're being drawn towards it, but you stop it. But when it's indulged, when the urge is surrendered to and cultivated, when the will agrees with the craving, when the will agrees with the craving, surrenders to it and cultivates it, that is a sin. Then an unholy union is formed between the illicit desire and the surrendered will. Because the thought is carried on, you let it nest. Or the words come out, and you discuss it, and it's nesting. Or you actually go and fulfill it by behavior. You live it out. Think how Eve processed her sin. I mean, she just walked through these steps so clearly, didn't she? It wasn't all at once. She didn't just hear the devil say that and then take the apple. Or it wasn't an apple, it was fruit, just as fruit. Um, and it wasn't Adam's apple either. Just get that erased. She processed the thing in her mind. Oh, the, man, the mind is such a battlefield. That's why it needs to be renewed, people. She conceived is a word borrowed from the process of childbirth. The picture is the coming together of two people with the resultant conception. One commentator put it this way. When the will consents to the illicit union the lustful feelings become pregnant with sin. And then it gives birth. To what? To sin. When there's conception, unless interrupted, birth follows naturally. In the word pictures that James paints, tracing the steps of temptation, it shows the conception of lust to culminate in the birth of sin. And when sin is accomplished, when when it's born... And it's accomplished. The process continues and the sin which has now birthed grows to develop into maturity. When it's accomplished, literally means to come to completion, to be fully grown. The word connotes the the completeness of parts and function. Everything's working together and it is full. It brings forth death. You go, okay, wait a second, Lynette, here we go. What are you talking about death here? I'm a believer. Yeah, but you're going to (laughs) die. You're going to die. What does the death mean here? In the most literal sense, death means separation. And you've heard me teach this from this pulpit. Every place you see death, you can just use the word separate. And there's a number of different deaths that are spoken about in the Bible. There is physical death, where the soul separates from the physical body. That's death. There is spiritual death, where the soul is separate from God, the source of spiritual life. We are all born in iniquity. It's called original sin. We are all born separate from spiritual life. That's why we need a Savior and we need the gospel to give us spiritual life again. But spiritual death is when the soul is separate from the life, the spiritual life of God. 
And then there is eternal death that's spoken about in the Bible. That's where the soul is separate from God eternally. That's when the soul that is born in iniquity and original sin does not believe the gospel and reconnect with God through Jesus Christ, and they die. They die separate from God. There are no second chances. Then they go into eternal death, eternal separation from God. Now, at this point, it's important to clarify what type of death James is talking about. His audience was comprised of believers and unbelievers, and his teaching on temptation must relate to believers somehow, because we're believers, and we understand that a believer can never be separate from Christ in any way. Just read Romans 8, 37 through 39. What separates us? Nothing. Nothing at all. So it can't be either spiritual or eternal death, which is spoken of in this verse, so it refers to physical death. You say, well, how does it refer to physical death? Well, quite easily, Paul addressed this issue in 1 Corinthians 11.30, where he taught that for this reason, remember he's teaching on communion there, and he says, for this reason, Corinthians, many among you are weak and sickly, and a number of you sleep. What do you mean they're falling asleep in a sermon? No. It means that they were dead. They died physically. Why? Because of their pernicious sin that they refused to repent of. These are believers, people. Sleep was a euphemism for physical death as a result of their willful, unrepentant sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul spoke of delivering one to the destruction of his flesh. That would be death. Okay? And he's talking about a Christian. Delivering him to the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. So, believer, this is like an unwelcome truth, but it is a truth. You keep sinning, and you are truly one of God's children. He will chasten you. It starts with still small voice telling you what you're doing is wrong. Then it gets a little bit louder. Then there's a tap on your shoulder, so to speak. Then there's a little punch in the arm. It keeps increasing because the Spirit of God is a convictor of sin, righteousness, and judgment in lives. And he will have his people to be holy. He will not allow us to dirty his name. This is serious truth. It seems to refer to physical death. Now, in John 5, 16... We see the line of a believer where they can commit sin, which leads to physical death. It's a third instance in the scripture to talk about this. And as all this relates to the deception of Eve and her sin in the garden, did it not lead to her physical death? The answer is yes. Death came as by one man, Adam, and passed on to all in the world. So sin actually does. And maybe James was thinking all the way back to Genesis This verse can also be instructive to those who have not yet believed. I'm talking about James. Because to that person, the one that hasn't truly trusted Christ yet or surrendered themselves to him, their present state is a state of spiritual death where they're separate from the spiritual life that is in God. It says in Ephesians 2, 1, um, that you are dead, separate, in your trespasses and sins. Okay, We all start out there. And if you remain in that state, though, and die physically, then you will have entered into a point where you will suffer eternal death, eternal separation from God. But, and this is a great but, Jesus Christ came to seek and save sinners. His death on the cross paid for your sin, for my sin, for sin. And if we humbly admit that we're sinful, and our sin is causing our separation from you so that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, if you humbly admit that, you may have eternal life because he will abundantly forgive your sins. This is what is called the gospel. He will forgive you of all your sins. Listen to me, temptation and sin are nothing to play with. They come with dire consequences. And we can shine them over and make it sound good and say, ah, you know, I'm just doing my own thing, you know, I've got to sow my oats or whatever you want to say. 
The truth of the matter is what I've been teaching today is very serious. It's a matter of life and death. And so to any here today who have not yet believed and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, will you do that right now? You can do that right now. I love, I love uh, gosh, I can't think of his first name anymore. I just think of Billy. Billy's son, Billy Graham. He's on, he's on commercials now. Franklin, there we go, Franklin. He looks like Billy now. He's starting to let the hair grow, you know, and everything. But man, did he get his life squared away. He was such a, he just really rebelled against his father and Christ and everything. He finally got saved. And he's been doing a good work with Samaritan's Purse. And now he's doing these commercials that are just simple gospel. If you'll just admit that you are sinful and ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, he will forgive your sins and you can have eternal life in him. If you want to pray, just pray this simple prayer with me. And he just goes on with a one little sentence prayer and I just thank God for that. That's marvelous. You know, I'd give some more depth. <laughs> I'd spell it out a little bit more like I just did, but that's okay. This is great. God's arm is not shortened. Jesus came to the world to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, as a final word to those who have believed, this is for believers now. Listen to this warning from a 17th century Scottish theologian named Henry Scruggle. It comes from his book, The Life of God in the Soul of Men. It's an excellent book. Every willful sin gives a mortal wound to the soul, puts it at greater distance from God and goodness. And we can never hope to have our hearts purified from corrupt affections, that sin that's within us. We may never take it out completely, but we can lessen the impact that it has. We can never hope to have our hearts purified from corrupt affections unless we cleanse our hands from vicious actions. Stop sinning. You have the power to say no to sin. And with that, I've got to stop. We're right on time. I cannot believe it. But we're going to get into the sin next week. And then we'll talk about the implications of that sin, the consequences of that sin, and God's judgment on it, and then the mercy that he shows, even in the midst of sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Genesis chapter 3 that helps us to answer what happened and why we see the human condition the way it is. A lot of people say there can't be a God in heaven. If there was a God in heaven, why would all this suffering be here like it is? And why do such terrible things happen? Well, this is why. It's because sin, sin is a corruption. It's a corruption of all that is good and all that God planned for mankind. And it happened in Genesis chapter 3. God, prepare our hearts to go through the rest of these verses and to be taught by them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.